Okay, good morning. We're here to study 2 Corinthians. We are on chapter 2, verse 16. But first, we want to pray uh, to begin and include in our prayers the different people around the world that are or that we know that we're listening. One in particular that I want us to pray for is uh, a dear brother named Christo from South Africa. He had a stroke, and uh, he's he, and he's a he call he he's called us. He generally emails us, and he knows Karen down at the office quite well. And he's really a wonderful, wonderful guy. So I don't know if you're listening, Christo, but we're going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we do lift up our brothers and sisters around the world, many of who are in difficult situations, some in danger, but many lacking fellowship. And we pray for our brother Christo in South Africa that you would help him recover from the stroke. And I thank you, Lord, for his love for the truth and and passion to get the truth out to the to the church in South Africa that they might be warned about some of the problems. And Lord, we prayed that today we would better learn what it really means to serve you and to be committed to the gospel as we open up Second Corinthians. And we ask you for wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Second Corinthians two verse sixteen. We started talking about this. If you remember. Last week I was talking about the Greek prepositions where it says from death to death and from life to life. It was ek, out of death, ice, into death. And I read a quote that explained that. And we were talking about the fact that the message that Paul brought, his gospel, brought division. It's a message that divides And it divides between people who believe the gospel when they hear it and people who are offended by it. And according to 1 Corinthians 1, which we read last week as a cross-reference, this is just the way it is. It's just um, built in. This, This division between life and death is part and parcel of what the gospel does. And then we were discussing that because of that, that's why it's so foolish to try to undo that reality, okay? Anytime you try to bridge the gap uh, to, to resolve this built-in conflict, the only thing you possibly can be doing, other than removing needless offenses, let me, let me add that. We should never give, Paul says, give no offense to Jew, no Greek, nor church of God, okay? And so... The, the idea is the gospel is offensive enough in its own native reality without a, us adding to it. Okay? So we can add to the, we can offend people by needlessly, uh, throwing up barriers. Um, uh, uh, how, how would you, what would be an example of that? I, I, I see people, sometimes if you get so eccentric with, by adding rules that God didn't add, those things become a barriers, needless barriers. Uh, or, or exploiting your liberty, like Paul said, if to the Jew I become a Jew, he doesn't go into the synagogue and eat pork and say, now listen to me. There's no reason point. to exploit your liberty. You want to work in such a way as you don't needlessly offend people with liberties that God really even gave you. Okay, even a legitimate liberty shouldn't be used to offend anybody. 
uh, particularly someone you're trying to preach the gospel to. And so we should have some consideration to the um, norms of, of society and what what's acceptable as far as how we speak to one another and what form and what context. Okay? Um, anybody else want to add to that idea about not giving needless offense? Okay, but... People have taken that one verse, give no offense to Jew nor Greek to the Church of God, and then taken that to justify changing the gospel itself. And, and that's an offense that we can't change, we can't get, get away from, but because it's part of the whole uh, reality of the fact that the fallen human race is offended by the truth of the gospel. Now, let's look up some cross-references. Uh, Robert, if you could look up Luke 2.34 and Amy... Uh, John 9:39 and Stephen Peter 2 and verse. I wonder what I'm trying to get at there. Well, let's try verse 7. I hope that's the right one. Okay, we have Luke 2:34. Luke 2:34. Then Simon uh, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. That's very, that's interesting. So that's one of the key. Oh, I got to be careful. That's the passage that that Ryan gave out in hermeneutics. <laughs> the last time he did that, I preached on it and ruined. Right in hermeneutics, he gave the assignment, and that was the passage. Back a while back, he did that, and then I preached on it, so everybody had to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come on, you're trying to get me to do it again. <laughs> Well, not saying too much. <laughs> In the mouth of Simeon, we see that the gospel is going to be the rise and fall of many in Israel. And then it says a sign to be opposed. Right? Is that what it says? Okay, so already before the gospel is even preached in the book of Luke, you have this foreshadowing that it's going to be controversial and that it's going to be rejected and it's going to bring judgment to some and blessing to others. I think I probably gave it away. <laughs> Poor Ryan. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Do your own study and, and come up with your own answer for hermeneutics. <laughs> I remember uh, Ryan and I learned a lot of that's been a great blessing to us and I believe to the congregation about interpreting Scripture from our favorite professor, Dr. Versaput, who's now gone to be with the Lord. But he taught us how to read. That's, and that's what this hermeneutics class is for. He taught us how to read. And when he gave us assignment, like what, what Ryan gave, he said, you can use commentaries if you want, but beware, it might hurt your grade because they're often wrong. <laughs> you know, in other words, uh, especially the older commentaries, this is one, kind of a reverse of what you see mostly, most of the trends in the church. Most everything that's more contemporary is more far off, and the older things are better. When it comes to commentaries, my favorite ones are all the newest ones. And the reason is because of this revolution in understanding Scripture as literature to be read, rather than assuming it has some secret meaning. And, and uh, when you learn how to interpret narrative... Um, it's amazing how it just comes to life because these writers use literary style to bring out their meaning. In some of the newer commentaries, especially on the epistles, 
are using a lot of archaeological evidence, not just in stuff, but in the languages that they're finding, the uses of words in the temples that they're discovering, that really broadens out and brings much clearer meaning to the terms used in the, the scripture because they're contemporary and helps bring that to bear, which isn't in yeah. the old ones. Yeah, there's, there's really been a good advances in, in, in studies and in contextual studies and archaeological studies. For example, uh, in Colossians, it, it was almost impossible to interpret certain words in Colossians until they were found in inscriptions in, in temples, and then they found out that they had technical religious meanings that, that, that stupefied uh, um, commentators for years because they didn't know they didn't know where those what the words meant because it was only used once in the once or twice in the Bible, and it was hard to tell what Paul was getting at in his context, and they had no other uses. And then they found the words in these temples and found out that there was a technical religious meaning in in Asia Minor, and so the Colossians had brought those same ideas into their. Um, uh, church and wrongly so. So that's how we learned it. So, yeah, it was in the 20th century before they even found that. Now, so a lot of very good commentaries are be, being written right now. And another good development that is shocking, but it's, it's, it's amazing in some ways, is that even the liberals are starting to write good commentaries. Um, l- l- let me give you an example. Um, there's a great two-volume work called the, Liter- or the Narrative Unity of Luke-Acts, volume one about a volume two, written by a guy named Tannehill, who I think is from Asbury, which I think is a liberal Methodist college. But you know why? Because they got bored with this whole thing of trying to go back, oh, you know, uh, Moses didn't write Genesis, and this came from this, and this came from that, and all this JEDP. Well, that's, that whole thing ran its course, and, and even the liberals finally decided it didn't help with anything. And they kind of got, instead of trying to uh, debunk the Bible, they decided, well, why don't we just accept the Bible as literature? Whether it was, you know, in other words, we're not going to comment on whether we think it was inspired or whether we think it's inerrant, but it is literature. And so some of the top minds, uh, as far as literary analysis, they may not necessarily be evangelical. They'll just put their mind to interpreting it as literature and let us decide whether the Holy Spirit inspired it. And they've written some really good books about here's what Luke means. All right? They may not believe Luke, but they can tell you what he meant because they can read it. And so uh, I've read that, that, that two-volume work, uh, The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts by Tannehill, and it's just, it's just fabulous. It's unbelievable. So, um, that's why you learn how to read. Because the, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, but the, the Bible, biblical writers use the norms of language of their day. And they, they tell a story like somebody would today. And by seeing what they're doing, the meaning becomes alive. And both Ryan and I use that approach in our sermons. Um, okay, let's look at another passage, John 9.39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Wow. If you didn't hear that? For judgment I came into the world, that those who, what does it say? That those who see cannot see? Those who do not see may see, and those that, those who see may be made blind. All right, amazing passage. Now let's look at let's put that in context. That's in John nine thirty nine. Now, 
Again, context, 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 as Ryan said Thursday night, for those of you who were at the class. John 9 is about the healing of a blind man. Okay? And the blind man ended up in a, in a debate with the, the, the people, the Jewish leadership, and they were going to throw him out of the synagogue. So here this guy's blind and he gets healed. All right? And they're going to throw him out of the synagogue. And, and they, want, they wanted him to be a witness to the fact that Jesus was a sinner. And, and in his famous line, the blind man says, Where he, whether he be a sinner or not, I, know, I do not know. But, but what I do know is once I was blind, now I can see. <laughs> All right? And I think then later the guy actually comes to faith, if you, if you read the story. But, but that passage that Amy read, is, is, in a context you can see who the blind are that are losing their sight, and who are the sightless or beginning to see? The sightless are the poor people, the, the outcasts of society, the needy ones, who are willing to listen to Jesus and believe. That's what that guy did. He, and he, the same guy not only received his physical sight, he received spiritual sight, if you read the whole story. But the people who, should, who could see, in other words, they had the scriptures, they had the traditions, they, they had physical sight, and they should have every ability to have spiritual sight, are becoming blind because their hard hearts are being uh, uh, hardened even more because of their rejection of the gospel. So who's becoming blind is the spiritual leaders, and who's seeing is the blind man. And, that, and the reason that's a cross-reference for our passage in 2 Corinthians uh, 2.16 is that that's precisely what happens, that when we hear the truth and harden our heart against it, what happens is we become more blind than we were before. That's, that's the judgment of hardening. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1. Okay, the other passage was 1 Peter 2 and verse 7 that Stephan's going to read. I shall read 7 and 8. This precious value, then, is for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone that this st- of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Okay, so they stumbled because they're disobedient to the wor- wor- to the word. So here again is this same concept of blessing and cursing, if you want to look at it that way, or enlightenment and blinding. So to the ones who the same stone, Jesus Christ is the rock, is one who either becomes the head of the corner, the foundation of our salvation, the capstone, or he becomes a rock of offense. And the, and the difference is found in the hearers. And uh, so this is this is something that you could read in. We read it in John. We read it in Luke. We read it in First Corinthians. We read it in Second Corinthians. We read it in First Peter, and you could certainly read it in Romans. So it's unavoidable and unchangeable. And as I was saying, that is precisely why the whole seeker movement is 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 impossible for it to be correct because it's trying to remove the offense. It's trying to make it so that that doesn't happen anymore. And so that everybody will accept this version of Christianity, whoever they might be. It can be universally accepted. And I'm telling you, you can't undo what's built into the gospel because God put it there. 
Okay? Is that going to change? I remember I was quoting some things in here. I had a few more. I didn't get all of those quoted here. Here's, here's a few more quotes um, off that one PowerPoint I did a few years ago. Remember, remember uh, uh, Rick Warren was saying people aren't interested in truth? Yeah, let's pick up with that one again. Because preachers are called to communicate truth, we mistakenly assume unbelievers are eager to hear it. But unbelievers aren't that interested in truth these days. In fact, surveys show that the majority of Americans reject the idea of absolute truth. But, okay. So should we give them lies? Because they like those better? Some more quotes here. People feel the same emotional, relational needs. These, these include the need for love, acceptance, forgiveness, meaning, self-expression, purpose for a living, uh, freedom from fear, guilt, worry, resentment, discouragement, and loneliness. So if you just preach, well, things that make people not feel lonely, things you know, alleviate fears and what have you, well, then I won't offend them. Notice this, quote, Jesus taught in a way that people understood the value and benefit of what he was saying. He didn't try to threaten the unchurched. All right, we're back on the air. <laughs> I ran out of battery there. Okay, now I was reading this thing. Jesus didn't try to threaten the unchurched into the kingdom of God. That's a quote. Now, here's another quote. Listen to this. What people need today are fewer ought-to sermons and more how-to sermons. Now, all right. Don't tell people what they ought to do. They don't like to hear that. They just tell them how to. Now, on the surface, what's wrong with that? <laughs> the ten suggestions. Well, that's exactly what they do. Now, when I was researching the, the seeker movement, I found this old book in my heresy library called The Be Happy Attitudes. <laughs> Anybody read that classic? The Be Happy Attitudes. It was by Robert Schuller. And what he did was he took the Beatitudes and made them into uh, a self-help genre. How to live a happier life. Whereas, if you really read the Sermon on the Mount, what it does is it makes you afraid that you're going to go to hell. It says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom. Now, if you were a Jewish person and you heard Jesus say that, and he's saying the most righteous people that you know aren't going to get into the kingdom and you have to be better than them, what are you going to think? Help, help, it's hopeless. I'm going to be lost. And that's the point, because the only righteousness that will get you into the kingdom is the imputed righteousness of Christ that's received by faith and not by works. And so, by by turning the Sermon on the Mount into the be happy attitudes, you're, you're gutting it of its purpose. Its purpose is to show us that that there's a reversal going on and that, we're, that we need something or we're not going to be good enough. We're not going to make it. So, uh, so these how-to, well, so what, so what I did is I, I was reading the Be Happy Attitudes again. <laughs> and then I went into, I think, the Purpose Driven Church, and, and that's exactly what Rick Warren was doing, it was what Schuller did. It was, it, the, the, it was eight ways for better living or something like that, turning it into sort of like a self-help genre and taking the teeth out of the ought-to thing that was scarce into the need for the gospel. So, yeah, um, I've got to read this to everybody. This is the best thing. Well, not the best, but just <laughs> the funniest thing from Rick Warren. Now, think about of all the things that you could choose as an analogy for teamwork. And let's, let, I'll read this. 
thousands of years ago in the book of Genesis, there was a group of people who wanted to build a tower, and they had a clear vision and a compelling purpose, and they were committed in their team, and they were confident, and they were going to do this. And they started building this project, and God didn't want it to happen. And he had to come in and confuse their communication, their language, so the project would stop. It was called the Tower of Babel, and God said this in Genesis. So this is your analogy that you use that, that's for That's proving that we need teamwork, the Tower of Babel. And he goes, if as one people speaking the same language they're going to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. That was his analogy for teamwork, was to be like the Babel builders. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Bring that to hermeneutics class. And we can use it as an example of how not to interpret the Bible. <laughs> I mean, that's a perfect example of taking something out of context because when you read the story of the Tower of Babel, what's the first thing that you find out? It was bad. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's the last paragraph. I, I didn't, I missed this. Think about this. This is God talking. God says, when you have a committed team and a compelling purpose and you have a clear communication, you are unstoppable. Boy, those oh. Tower of Babel oh, builders. Man, man. Oh. let's all be like all them. Right. Wait, we definitely got to bring that one to hermeneutics class. <laughs> if you turn that in in seminary, you get an F. Because the way you learn uh, the interpret narrative, let, let me, let's just use it as a little hermeneutical example. You learn moral law of God from narrative as well as directly from commandments. When there's a story in the Bible, the writer, the, or the, the narrator, you'll see them called in, um, in uh, scholarly literature, the narrator is telling a story about what happened for a reason. And with the story comes clues about whether it's good or bad. Rarely, you know, occasionally something might just be a neutral fact. You know, so-and-so was riding on a donkey or something, and that's just how they got around in those days. There may not be a moral to the fact you have to, but there's clues whether there are. The Tower of Babel is not hard to interpret. Okay? It was in a section where it was talking about how evil the world became. And it's... It's a flabbergasting. You know, I, I saw, I, that's not the first time I've seen that interpreted that way, Brian. Um, I was reading a book in the 80s that somebody sent me written by a guy named Frangipan, or however he pronounces his name. And he used the same analogy. He, he was saying that, if, uh, that the Tower of Babel proves that if we all just get into unity, we have, we'll have an unlimited power. Nothing that we want to do can be stopped. So I wrote the guy a letter, and I said, what kind of biblical interpretation of that is that? This is terrible. The Tower of Babel was sinful. How can you use that as a good example of what Christians should do? Well, then the guy didn't write me back, didn't write me back, didn't write me back. And then a mutual friend, I told him that the guy refused to write me back, so I don't want to take him seriously. So he told another friend. So the guy finally wrote me back and he goes, well, I sold 175,000 books. Um, and how, well, I'm not a theologian. You know, why are you being so picky? Okay, you know, why, why would it be a bad thing to mislead 175,000 people? All right, yes. That, that analogy um, is, is a descriptive as well as a, as it's, it's instructive also because 
it tells us what they, what they actually did, and that's what Warren is, is alluding to, the fact that it was teamwork. Certainly it was teamwork, but what happened with that, with that teamwork is, is the, uh, the instruction to us is just don't offend God. You know, don't, don't do things that God doesn't want us to do, and this is exactly what Warren is doing. So to me, I mean, that's the beginning of the end for if people really listen to this, and if somebody heard that, this is the beginning of the end for Warren, if he's using that as an analogy, because somebody, there's, there's got to be people in his group that say, says, wait a minute, you know, certainly that was teamwork, but what happened to the, to, to, to the people there? Well, and it didn't even work. They got scattered all over the earth. So exactly. the, what, let's, let's go another step into the interpreting uh, Genesis. The point of it doesn't prove the unlimited power of human unity. It proves the sovereign power of God. Because they, they were in perfect unity, they all had one language and they all had one intent, and they did not succeed in what they were doing, because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor build it in vain. I mean, there's all kinds of points you can get out of it, but not the unlimited power of human potential. Yes. Well, and the basic concept is he's using that passage to recruit us into the Babylonian system. Now come, let's join. So the new the Babylonian Bible, system the is talked system. about in Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, that, so run the other way. Run the other way. Um, I was just going to say basically what he just said. It's ironic that Warren wrote that because it's exactly what his whole movement is about, is building a mystical t- Tower of Babel to God. Rebuilding a p- Tower of Babel. And something else I wanted to mention is it's funny because the whole purpose of that whole movement is because they want to have this experience like you guys write about in both your books. And I know for me that was something that I wanted also. But I didn't truly find that real experience of truth and intimacy and love with God until I was broken by how my sinfulness offended God. And once I was broken by that, then I had the experience of worship and intimacy with God. They say they want to give that to people, but they're actually inoculating them from it by their, by their movement. Okay. Amen. Go back that way. An innocent person walking in. Huh, you. <laughs> yes, Dan. Well, from an astronomical point of view, um, you can't build a tower to reach the sky because you'd never reach it, obviously. But right. that's by our modern knowledge. Back then, they believed that the heaven was just a finite distance above the surface of the earth, which was flat. So building a tower wasn't sinful. But the thought that they could reach heaven by building a, a, a tower, yeah. that was what was sinful. Yeah, not only that, the towers in Babylon are called zubarats, and they were astrological observatories. So it was, had to do with worshiping the, the planets as if they were gods. Yeah, it was for a pagan purpose, yeah, well, God, pagan religion. They wanted to build a tower to stay together so they didn't, weren't scattered over the earth, and God had commanded them to go fill the earth. So there was something Good that point. was very much an antithetical to obeying God's command. Yeah. God said to multiply across the earth. They didn't want to do it. So, I just want to say one more quick thing. Um, I can't remember where the verse is, but there's a verse where Jesus says, He who does not gather with me scatters. Do you know where that yeah, is? Yeah, I, I it's in the synoptics. It's, that's so ironic because the Rick Warrens of this whole movement, they're really not gathering anyone to Jesus Christ. They're gathering people to themselves and actually scattering them away from Jesus. Okay, let me get back to some of these quotes. Now, it says, what people need today are fewer ought-to sermons. Well, if that's the case, 
Um, I think most of the church is quite safe because they're not going to hear that. You can pretty well go to church anywhere and not hear an opt-to sermon because nobody wants to make people squirm. Um, but notice, the, but here's what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus literally said. Quote, Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Is that the be happy attitudes? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, but he said Jesus uh, didn't threaten the unchurched. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not the unchurched, that threatens me. Right? All right. Okay, so you might just get a little uncomfortable reading the Bible. Now let's go to verse 17. We gotta get through, uh, I, I gotta get through at least one verse. We can't blame daylight savings time if we don't either. Alright, 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Wow. So the contrast here in, if you look at how you interpret the scripture, um, one of the things that's important is looking for parallelisms. The, the Jewish way of expressing themselves often was using parallelisms. I mean, the, the Proverbs and the Psalms are full of it. You know, blessed is the man who is, and then cursed is the one who does this. Well, that's antithetical parallelism. A synonymous parallelism is where you say the same thing two different ways, and it helps you interpret. Well, here we have a contrast, an antithetical. The peddling is antithetical to sincerity. Okay? So, obviously, now, of course, we, I want to look at some Greek words, but yes. Well, it goes right back to the Rick Warren thing, merchandising or profit of the word. Well, if you want to peddle the word, you're going to tell people what they want to hear. They're not going to buy what they don't want to hear. Yes. Just a more basic question, because we, Paul also wrote in Philippians that he rejoiced when the true word was preached, even with malice. And those people with malice could be fitting in here. As long as the true word is being preached, that was good, but it wasn't helpful for the people that were preaching it maliciously. Right. Is this easy talking about the no, true word being peddled? No, because this isn't the true word? word, because you can't peddle the true word, because it offends people. You can't make merchandise. It just doesn't sell. I mean, imagine if Tony Robbins, uh, we've been talking about him on our radio series, imagine, which starts tomorrow. Okay? If you go to oneplace.com, critical issues commentary, tomorrow the series on Brian's book starts that we're doing. Um, anyhow, we were talking about Tony Robbins. Imagine if Tony Robbins got up and said, well, if you're even, you know, angry, you're going to go to hell. I mean, would he fill up the uh, convention center? Uh, no. How about Deepak Chopra? Chopra? Yeah, no. no. This is not going to happen. So, if you're going to peddle, you're going to have a hard time making your living with the true gospel. Because it offends way more people than the saves, because narrows the gate and narrows the path that leads to eternal life, Right? So the, the only reason for preaching the actual true gospel is that you believe it's true and that God's going to use it to save who he's going to save. 
If you're going to try to make merchandise out of your religion, you've got to come up with something that's different. Now, let's, let's analyze this passage. I did a bunch of work in the Greek here. Got a lot of cross-references. Um, we speak, by the way, is the key verb in the sentence, all right, because it, it, it modifies what, what we're talking about. And what Paul is saying is that he doesn't adapt the gospel to make it marketable. That's the basic idea of this sentence. Do, do not adapt the gospel to make it marketable. It must be proclaimed so that it either brings death or life, as it said in verse 15 and 16. It has to be proclaimed so that it does what it's supposed to do, be an aroma of life to those who are being saved, and an aroma of death to those who, who are not. And so, if you try to make it marketable, it loses its native power. The, the, the power is in the words of the gospel preached clearly from the Bible. The, the power is not us. The power is not our intellect. The power is not our abilities. The power is the gospel itself. And God can use the gospel on the lips of anyone, including babes, to convert the lost. Okay, so we are not like many. Now, the many there in the Greek is hoi polloi. You've probably heard that. I saw it in the sports page the other day. I Literally, I saw hoi polloi in the sports page. So um, those sports writers actually do go to school, you know. <laughs> so, you know yeah, they do. I, some of them are very good. They're, I have a, that, who's that guy I like? Suen, he's a guy that writes for the Star and Trib, fabulous writer, uh, just and has a mastery of the English language in a way of turning a phrase. I, I think it's fabulous. Anyhow, I was reading a sports page. I saw Hoi Polloi, and I was just studying this verse, so I thought it was funny. found it in the Bible, and I found it in the sports page. Hoi Polloi is the many, but here it means the mob of teachers. So the many are the ones that are peddling the Word of God. So the masses of who are out there with a message are peddling something. And Paul says, we're not like the hoi polloi. And peddling, the Greek word means the retailer who sells in the market. This is very simpler. It's, it's what the retailer selling in the market does. Peddles. Uh, so we don't peddle the word of God, which here is used synonymous with the gospel. Yes? Being a former retailer... That's hard for me to hear you say that. Peddlers are, are the guys on the street that are peddling the fake. Jim had many people come into the store with their watch that they bought last week in New York. It wasn't the real thing. And it was the fake. It was the $10,000 watch that they got for $25 on the street, and they wanted to know why it wasn't the real thing. <laughs> when, when, when the gospel's being peddled, we are responsible for what part we're buying from it, too. Yes, it's not, not the just the, the, just who's preaching it, but it's how we're receiving it. I understand, but the word, the Greek word itself is neutral. It isn't necessarily pejorative. Okay? But uh, does it say retailer? Well, retailer sells in the market is simply what it means, but it wouldn't be sinful to sell in the market if you're selling the real thing. The market is where they sold everything in the ancient so, world. Somehow in, in, in my mind. I think of the peddler as being the dishonest marketer. Right, that's true. And, that, and when I, that's why I was bringing out the Greek, because when I read this, that's the first thought I had. Um, but the, the fact, it does have a negative connotation as used here, 
because the thing they're peddling is the Word of God. And that's not how the Word of God is spread, by making it marketable. But in, in the Greek... All right, <laughs> grab it. <laughs> Actually, it's the receiver that's getting in. It's coming from anywhere. Um, so it's negative as used here, but in, in, in the Greek, the word doesn't mean a negative. In other words, they're not, they're, you wouldn't say this word wouldn't distinguish from somebody who was honestly selling the right thing. We could say the same thing being retailed. If you just said being retailed, it would be mean the same thing. You could use it with a negative connotation, yeah. but the word retail isn't sinful in and of itself. Well, uh, some people think the definition of sin is to buy at retail, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, over here. Bob, I've got a note uh, in my Bible that uh, gives an alternative meaning to peddling. It says, adulterating for gain, the Word of God. You know, and that's what I had the, the last time I taught this. That's how I interpreted it. But then I have some more powerful Greek tools now. So as I was digging through them, I found that it isn't always the context determined whether it's bad or not. But here it is. And that's what it means in this context. Absolutely. It means giving a fake or like Diane was saying, selling somebody a Rolex. <laughs> well, I got a new Rolex. I got it for $29.95 on eBay. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what I is real. Well, I was just going to say, too, that it's interesting because using the phrase um, here, using the whole counsel of God, and oftentimes the deception isn't always what they're saying, but what they're leaving out. And I just wonder how Rick Warren would interpret this passage, and I would guess that he would avoid it totally. And so, you know, oftentimes you can sit in a self-help, and it all sounds wonderful, and it's using Bible verses, but they're leaving out all the meat, all the important stuff. Right. That's like, let's just go back to the be happy attitudes, all right? By the way, the word be attitude has, nothing, has no relationship to the English word attitude. It's a Latin phrase. It means blessed, <laughs> to be blessed. The be happy attitudes, if you read Schuler. He leaves out the one, if you, if you say, thou fool, you're going to go to hell. In other words, they go through the Sermon on the Mount and pull out parts of it and, and then contrive those to mean secrets to happy, happy living. All right, so back to our pastor. Not like the hoi polloi peddling the Word of God. Here meaning making what normally wouldn't be marketable, marketable by some way, like you said, adulterating probably. Because otherwise it wouldn't, it wouldn't sell. But as from sincerity, now that word maybe is where we get the idea of adultery. Sincerity is a word here, ilacrinie, ilacrinie, and ile means light from the sun, crino means to judge. So sincerity means Tested by the light of the sun. So what would that connote? Tested by the light of the sun. Yeah, that, that this is the genuine thing. Somebody uh, was able to examine what Paul is proclaiming and put under the light of the sun in judgment, it would mean that it is pure. In fact, it's, that word is sometimes means moral purity. So it would be Genuine, pure, unadulterated, and not modified to make it marketable, whereas the hoi polloi are the many, the mob of teachers, and 
this probably here is a contemptuous reference, a disparaging reference. So I, where do I have here? Oh, I got some time left. Look at, um, yeah, here's a, here's a quote from a guy named Garland. Quote, he does not market the gospel with an eye for the bottom line. To survive in the marketplace, the peddler must adapt to the market either by making sure that what he ha- that he has what the people want to buy or by tricking them into thinking that what they want to buy, uh, that they want to buy what the peddler has to sell. Paul may be contrasting himself with the professional rhetorician. Um, and he quotes a guy named um, uh, Pretonius. This is somebody from the ancient world about talking about rhetorician. When spongers are trying to get a dinner out of their rich friends, they, their main object is to find out what they would most like to hear. The only way they will get what they want thereafter is by winning over their audience. It's the same with the tutor of rhetoric. Like a fisherman, he has to bait his hook with what he knows the little fishes will rise for. Otherwise, he's left on the rocks without hope of their biting. That's a quote from a guy uh, from Petronius, a guy from the ancient world. Now, that's what that's what they said. And remember what I quoted here. If you want to catch fish, remember that quote? Ah, I'm not finding. Remember Rick Warren said, if you want to catch fish, you got to let the fish determine the bait? That's exactly what this Praetorius was talking about. Unbelievable. It's not a good thing. So, that's what Paul was warning against. Okay, so we're not like the hoi polloi marketing the word, but from being examined by the light of the sun, purity, sincerity, but as from God, we speak. In other words, not adapting the gospel to make it markable. Um, There's four qualifications here in this passage of we speak. Four qualifications. One, from sincerity. Two, from God. Three, in Christ. Four, in the sight of God. So if you think about this, sincerity as being under the light of the sun. The idea is the one watching is God. In the sight of God. So Paul says, <clears throat> he and his apostolic brethren that are on the same team as him, Titus and so forth, they are preaching in the sight of God. In other words, God is watching what they're saying and it's his word that they're given to proclaim. And the idea is God would be very <clears throat> unhappy with me if I put words in his mouth or adulterated what he gave or came up with some other message because I thought it would make me more money than telling the truth. So the hoi polloi, the many, are not doing that. They're not concerned about being in the sight of God as far as their message goes. So, from sincerity, from God, in Christ, in the sight of God. So, that is what the true gospel ministry is supposed to look like. And so, we have the contrast between the many who peddle and adulterate, 
And I, and I agree. Do you have, was that MacArthur you were quoting, Robert? No, that was uh, out of the New Geneva. New Geneva, okay. The many, um, because, because of his contrast here, we can see he means that they adulterate because that's how they sell it. And then Paul and his associates speak in purity from God. Boy, I have a bunch of cross-references. we got some time. Oh, Mr. Cup. Just a quick question as you're going through it. What does the last? What do the last two phrases add to what we already know in Christ and in the sight of God? Well, what in the sight of God adds is the idea that He's the judge, and we're we're preaching with the idea in the back of our mind that God will judge what we're saying. And in Christ would be the source. Either in Christ can either mean the authority by which they preach, or He's the source of their message. Both things are true. Okay. Uh, in Christ and in the sight of God. Now, since you got the mic, look up 2 Corinthians 4 2. And uh, not very far down from where we are. And Joanne, 2 Corinthians 11 13 to 15. And Robert, Jeremiah 5 31. And Nicole, Matthew 24 24. We'll, we'll, we'll do that many and then see how far we get here. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he brings up that idea of in the sight of God again. But there it says we renounce the hidden things, uh, you know, the, the things under the surface, whether it's bad motives or the fact that we're seeing us from God when it really isn't. The, the adulterating the word has to go. Uh, people come to hear somebody that's purportedly preaching the gospel or teaching the word of God. What they should hear is the word, the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. So help us God in the sight of God. Okay? Was that you? <laughs> What'd you do? Okay, today, um, that was 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Wow. So that means there's a disguise. So Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, so the false teachers disguised themselves as Christians. Isn't that interesting? Um, Brian, we were talking about that too, that if you watch the guests on Oprah, how many are Christians? But what they're teaching is New Age. In other words, they say they're Christian, but they're teaching New Age. One more comment, and we'll go back to Bob here. Wouldn't that mean if you were going to be looking for false prophets and false teachers and deceitful workers, you'd look in the church and not outside? <laughs> yeah, that's where they come. Yeah, you find them in the church. Okay, then um, Jeremiah five thirty one. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Wow, the prophets prophesy falsely. The rulers rule under their own authority, and my people love it that way. Isn't that almost exactly what's going on in the 21st century? 
Yeah, if people fill up the huge auditorium to hear falsehood in the air. Read that again. That's Jeremiah 5.31. And the priests, oh, I'm sorry, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? What do you do at the end of it? In other words, they love it, but it, there's a bad end coming. Now, if you think about the context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was prophesying judgment was coming because of idolatry and that they'd already had all the chances they were going to get and the Babylonian captivity was coming and they had to just go to Babylon, serve there, and then God would bring them back for 70 years. That was his message. The false prophets said, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They had a positive message. And the people loved the message of the false prophets and they hated Jeremiah. Yeah, that false prophet said to be happy attitudes. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, hand it over to Gail. I just, I just thought of a uh, something, a preacher or somewhere on a tape I heard, and they said there's two things that attract. One, truth, two, error. <laughs> or, you know, truth or error. Okay. Well, the truth will attract people that love the truth, and error attracts people that don't love the truth. Okay, now, um, Matthew 24, 24. Um, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the error, when it's accompanied by supernatural signs, becomes all the more deceitful, Right? It's one thing when it doesn't work, but what if it does? No, I just wanted to say something really quick. That okay. Everything we're talking about always makes me think of the analogy of a Pied Piper that comes along with a flute or piccolo and plays this mystifying song that just leads, leads them astray and leads them right to a cliff. But they don't see it because they're in a trance. Yeah, sort of they're like so mesmerizing. Mystified. It's easier to deceive people when they're in an altered state. You didn't know you were going to say something, but... (laughs) What am I saying? (laughs) When you were in the New Age, did the supernatural things actually work? Yes, absolutely. I I mean, uh, a lot of people, when I first started doing seminars, people would come up and they go, okay, now, could you just tell us how you did it? In other words, how did, you know, did you move something underneath the table? Well, no, no, I, I, I went into an altered state of consciousness where spirit guides could speak to me. And demons do have some knowledge. They don't know the future, but they'd have enough knowledge that would be outside the chance of me knowing. And then you'd be so mesmerized or so impressed that you'd think, wow, that's really incredible. Maybe I should come back to Brian when I have another concern. Right. And that's the whole purpose. That's why, in a sense, why would demons do good things? Because it pulls you away from seeking truth of God, and it's giving you the carnal. It's giving you what you want. And so it undermines your faith. Imagine if you went to a psychic like that, got some good information, and you really enjoyed it, and then you come to Bob the next day and go, oh, you know what, I talked to my dead relative and it was so wonderful. And, of course, Bob's reaction is, no, that's wrong, that's divination. And you go, well, wait a minute. I had an experience. It was good. It was real. 
Therefore, that, he must be wrong, and maybe that Bible's wrong, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why they'll do good things. Yeah. And Brian, in his book, if you haven't read it, I recommend his book. But in his book, he tells about how when he was doing that, Christians would come and tell you you're going to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those nasty Christians are always got the same message. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but back in Hebrews during this study, did we not come to the conclusion that if you're truly one of God's elect, that you that He would keep those? Oh, as far as like apostasy, right? Well, that and that's kind of an implication of what Nicole read, right? If it were possible, it would deceive even the elect. So, let's put it this way: the the end times delusion that's prophesied about in Matthew 24 will target the church. And it will be so seductive, it will be so real, it will be so desirable that even God's elect are imperiled by it. God will preserve them, but it's it's going to be like, you better be careful. I, I would say, just like when we went through Hebrews, remember we were saying, we shouldn't be self-complacent. We shouldn't think, well, I'm the elect, I can't be deceived. Um, yeah, that's may a evidence you're not the elect, actually. In other words, God's true Christians who really know him um, would be worried about being deceived. In other words, we would think, I know I could be deceived because I'm human. And so I need to flee to the Scriptures and I need to use all the discernment that God gave me and I need to exercise my senses to discern good and evil by uh, feeding on the pure a meat of the word, as it says in Hebrews 5, whereas if you just are sort of complacent and say, oh, I'm a Christian, I can't be deceived, you may very well be the one that is deceived. Okay? And so that verse there, what we're trying to see is that for the true Christian, we're receiving warning, but comfort at the same time. The warning is this is really bad. It could deceive you. The comfort is God's going to keep us through the means he said he would, which is the means of grace. All right? But there are an awful lot of people in the church who aren't really born again. And these end-time delusions are tracking them and pulling them uh, away from the true gospel. Honestly, part of the challenge I run into, and I'm reading a book about offense, is you know I've got some members of my family that are buying into a false gospel, and they start bringing, you know, you better check, I mean, you better read Wayne Dwyer. You better, get, you know, Oprah. And I mean, a lot of that stuff. And I'm just, I don't know how to react necessarily in a kind way. You know, I just kind of, it irritates me. I'm just well, kind of going, why are, because, because when I, when I literally, I say, well, let's see what the Word of God says. Oh, no. You know, they don't want to. Well, that's, that's what's encouraging about Brian's story because I, I found it interesting because I reread his book to do this radio series. That God kept sending these Christians to annoy him, right? Because <laughs> they're always narrow-minded. They're always talking about you're going to go to hell, and he and he had his put-offs. How he'd get rid of them, you know? And he'd say, "I'm an agnostic Catholic." Is that what you said? Yeah, that was my joke. Uh, I'm a Catholic agnostic. I'm a Catholic agnostic, and so, but you never know, because before I was saved. There were Christians coming to me, too. And you can't help the fact that some people are going to be offended by the truth. 
And you can say it as nicely as you can. And in Brian's case, what was interesting in his story was that eventually he ran into, you ran into some Christians that were so much the real deal, you had a hard time dismissing them, right? And then he ended up being invited to church, and then he heard apologetics where people gave reason for faith rather than just blind faith. And that's what God used to convert him. So uh, that's the story. Yes. I know you got to close yourself, try and be brief, but I just wanted to say I'm, I would be the perfect example of like what Brian was saying as far as, you know, if I, if I had a good experience, then how can you tell me that's not from God? Because from my background, uh, there was a mishmash of things like growing up in the Catholic Church. We had guided imagery even in our classes. And I came from an abusive background, so I kind of already knew how to, dissociate when you when you can't physically get away from an abusive situation you do it mentally and children just naturally know how to do that plus I had a uh, an abuser in my past that knew how to put me in a hypnotic state so he could take advantage and so from a very young age I learned how to dissociate and I would pray to Mary or I would pray to my guardian angel because that's what they would teach in Catholic school and for me it was like a beautiful experience because here's this loving, beautiful, angelic person coming to embrace me, which I was so desperately longing for. But it wasn't until after I got saved that I realized wow. this is demonic. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, and, but that shows just how deceptive it is. Without the grace of God through the gospel, how would anybody know this warm, beautiful thing is evil? And then on top of it, it's a struggle. Especially if to, it brought you comfort. To Exactly, and, and I... That's, someone would say about my situation, well, how could you tell her that's a demon that's comforting her? It's, no, it's leading, it would be leading astray. Plus, on top of it, when you come out of an abusive situation, uh, it's, it, it, it blinds you even more to realize, you know, I'm a sinner who needs to repent. It's not just that I need healing for an abusive situation. I need healing from being a sinful creature that offends God. Nicole, God bless you. Thank you for sharing your story. And, um, Brian or Nicole, either one of them, if you ask, they're willing to share with what they've gone through and what they learned. But the fact is the gospel's for everybody. There isn't anybody that's suffered so badly in this world they don't need the gospel. Right? Okay. They need it all the worse. So thank you for um, sharing together in the Word, and we'll see you upstairs. Help me with the chairs.